Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Welcome to a very happy edition of Rico Bronia. Evan Roberts of Carton Roberts on the fan, Pete Hoffman, the fine producer of Tiki and Tierney. Uh, I just got back from the Met game, the finale of this three-game series against the Milwaukee Brewers, and I, I always want to be completely honest and transparent. I really felt this was a loss. This felt like a loss from, I don't want to say the first inning, because when Jeff McNeil came through with that RBI single behind 0-2 after Pete Alonso popped up the short, I felt pretty good. But really, the disastrous fourth inning felt, first of all, took forever. Tyler McGill's hurt. We'll get some imaging on Friday to find out how seriously hurt he is. And sure, it's fair to fear the worst, especially since this was only a second start back. But I can't be alone. McGill gives up the home run to Christian Yelich. He gives up the back-to-back hits. He walks Andrew McCutcheon. He throws one pitch to Narvaez, and you could see it, at least where I was sitting. I was in different seats today. Usually I sit behind the plate today. I was third baseline, not that you care, but I'm being descriptive where I saw this game. I was about 15 rows off the field, third baseline. And all of a sudden, after he throws that one pitch to Narvaez, you could see he's bothered. You could see something's up with the shoulder. And when Buck comes out, when Hefner comes out, when the trainer comes out, there's no way he's staying in the game. There's, just no, there's no effing way. There's no way he's going to convince, hey, let me throw a couple of warm-ups. I'm okay. So you know he's coming out. You know Chase and Treve is coming in. And that fourth inning, which at that point was still 1-1, bases are loaded one out. It felt very similar to the fifth inning the night before that this was going to be a disastrous setting. I said to my buddy at the game, uh, this game's going to get out of hand. To which he responded, yeah, if it gets out of hand, there's rain in the forecast, I may leave early. So we're game planning, basically, how ugly this game is going to get. And when Narvaez comes through with the two-run single and Renfro grounds into a fielder's choice, McNeil can't turn the double play. Not that it was necessarily on him. Probably wasn't hit hard enough. And now it's a 4-1 to game. It's not as if I was counting the Mets out because it was 4-1 to one and they couldn't hit Andy Ashby's son. It was more, it just felt like the Brewers were going to be able to tack on. That Chase and Tree would get beat up in the fifth inning. That this game would turn into kind of a real ugly night for the second straight day. And it would mean a series loss to the Brewers, which isn't the end of the world. But all of a sudden, the division lead would be down to three and a half. Yankee fans would be talking even more trash. And... It just wouldn't feel good as a Mets fan. And by the way, we'll address this later on in the podcast. There's a few things we'll hit on besides recapping the series. I want to go back a little bit in history because this week in Met history is important, good and bad. So we'll address that a little bit later on. Some trade targets that I've been eyeing. We'll address that a little bit later on. And we'll answer some questions and comments. But one thing we will address is that despite the Mets having this great season, The Braves and the Yankees, and I know the Yankees shouldn't bother us, but it does, their runs lately kind of puts the Mets in this position where they got to win every night, or else we as fans are going to be pissed off. It's not fair, it's not right, but it's the truth. I sit next to Craig Carton every day. Pete Hoffman's got to listen to Brandon Tierney every day. If the Yankees win on a nightly basis, even if the Mets get tripped up, 
and innocently lose a series to the Brewers, it's going to feel worse than the reality of it. And, and I'm just being, I'm being honest with you because I could sit here and say, oh, no big deal if they would have lost tonight. 40 and 24, 16 games above 500, three and a half game lead on, again, on the Braves. It's irrelevant what the Yankees are doing. I could say that, but it wouldn't be true. Because we all have friends who are Yankee fans. We all have coworkers who are Yankee fans. So I hate to admit this, but as that fourth inning is unraveling and as you're starting to ponder, because you can do this in a three-and-a-half-hour game, what this will feel like if this turns into just an ugly loss, the reality isn't as bad as how we would feel. So I think it's okay to admit that. But down four to one, my thought going into the bottom of the fourth was, we're going to have to score eight runs to win this game. It just felt like it was going to be one of those nights. And I thought what was really significant was that Tomas Nito RBI single with two outs in the fourth inning. Because A, and I always say this when, when you drop a big inning, you don't have to get it all back right away, but you got to start to tick-tack. you got to start to kind of get into that deficit. And so I thought... When Tomas Nito's up with two outs in what feels like, eh, they put a couple of guys on base, but it's going nowhere. For him to come through with that RBI single, I thought it was monstrous, even though the Guillerme was thrown out at third. And he clearly was thrown out at third, even though they replayed it. I thought that play in itself was significant. Followed up by Jason Tree after a rocky fourth inning, pitching a 1-2-3 fifth against the top of the order. And that was significant for this reason. Buck Showalter even said it after the game. And I got some things to say about Buck. It's not all positive, by the way. We'll get to that. Seth Lugo was going to get the opportunity to pitch two innings. If you could get through the fifth against the top of the order, which Shreve did, now all of a sudden, feels a little different. Okay, Seth Lugo for two innings, Drew Smith for an inning. If the game's close, Edwin Diaz in the ninth inning. And then if things go extra, you got Adam Ottavino. So you can kind of see how the bullpen plan would come together, but it doesn't work if Chase and Shreve can't pitch a clean fifth inning. And good Seth Lugo can't show up. And Seth Lugo was great. He was fantastic. He strikes out a couple of guys in the sixth, gives up a soft contact infield single to Lorenzo Cain, who I still hate, even though I felt bad for him when he's playing a ball in center field and the ball hits his balls. I felt bad. Even though Lorenzo Cain kicked us all in the balls when he drew that walk in Game 5 of the World Series against Matt Harvey. But still, I don't want to see another man have a ball hit his balls. That's all bad for Lorenzo. And I'm glad he's okay. But Lugo was tremendous. Drew Smith's able to make a big pitch and get through that eighth inning. And how about the Met offense? The New York Mets say, all right, we're down three. Tomas Nito, big RBI single, like I mentioned. And then Mark Canna hit a two-run homer in that. I don't know if you felt this way if you guys are watching this on TV. I didn't think there was any shot that ball was getting out. And I have a good, like a decent sense of where a ball is going to go. I thought that was going to be nestling into the glove of Lorenzo Cain in right center. But he hits that two-run home run. They fail to score in the sixth. They fail to score in the seventh inning. And then in the eighth, I am first guessing the crap out of Buck Showalter. Meanwhile, I had no idea until after the game that Eduardo Escobar is MIA. That Eduardo Escobar is dealing with, as Buck called it, a workplace situation or a non-workplace situation. I don't know what he called it. We just call it Eduardo Escobar. Sucks. I thought maybe they sent him home for a couple of days and said, maybe you can play MLB The Show and rediscover your swing. But in all seriousness, I don't know what's up with Eduardo. I hope everything's okay. But Buck Showalter after the game would not give any information on what's going on with him. So I sh- I'm sure we'll find out. Maybe by the time you're listening to this podcast, we'll find out. But I do know that Buck, after the game, was kind of giving it back to the reporter, saying, I'm not going to talk about it. But it's weird, because the more you don't want to talk about something, the more you start to think it's a big deal. But the reason I bring this up is because in the eighth inning of this game, as I look back down at my scorecard to remind myself, J.D. Davis leads off with a hit. Okay, great. Right off the top, I'm thinking... Can Starling Marte pinch run? Where is Starling Marte? Even if he can't swing a bat, even if he can't play the field. Remember, J.D. Davis is the D.H., so no big deal. He can be the pinch runner, and if that at-bat comes up later, okay, fine, you can pitch it for him. But he doesn't use Starling Marte. 
And so when the count is three and two on Luis Guillerme and J.D. Davis is on first base, he's basically standing on first base because he's afraid to take a lead against Brent Suter. I'm annoyed. I'm like, Buck, what are you doing, bro? Like, what? where is Starling Marte? Okay, doesn't use him. We get a break because Rowdy Tellez throws a ball in the left field. Hey, by the way, Hoff, and I'm just curious. Do you think Rowdy Tellez's name is really Rowdy? If you had to guess. Uh, no. I have a feeling that's a nickname. It can't be real. It is a nickname, okay? I had to look this up at the game tonight. Do you know why he's called Rowdy and how he somehow agreed to have all of us call him Rowdy? Because why would we call a grown man Rowdy? Is he a There's Piper a fan? What was is, that? He a rowdy, is he a Rowdy Piper fan? So it's funny you say that. I thought the same thing. I was like, this guy's got to be a Rowdy Rowdy Piper fan. Are you ready for story time, Pete? Because this is great. Let's go. Let's do it. You can use this note if you ever want at some point. Like, why is Rowdy Tellez Rowdy? So his name is Brent. No, no, Brian. Brian. His name is Brian. Very basic American name. Brian Tellez. Okay. His parents didn't want to know the gender of the baby. So they didn't know, is it a he or is it a she? So while baby Tellez is in the mama's stomach, they didn't want to say he, they didn't want to say she, they didn't want to say it because they didn't know the gender of the baby. So they just said, boy, that baby's rowdy. He's a rowdy baby. Baby rowdy. <laughs> and then he's born and they start calling him rowdy. What do you think of that one? And he, and he kept it? Yeah, like that to me is like, I, that's not a name that you keep. Like, it's like, oh, cute for like, you know, till you're 10. I agree. But I'm thinking that maybe he then realized Rowdy Piper is awesome and said, I'm going to keep it because Rowdy Piper has it. So the point is, that's his name. I, I just thought that was a nice little interlude as we uh, break down hardcore baseball talk. But Tellers makes that terrible throw. And so now they have first and third. And then Buck pinch runs with Starling Marte. And so I listened to Buck's postgame. I did not hear specifically him ask why he didn't use him earlier. So here's my speculation on this, on why he didn't use him at first, but he used him at third. 3-2 count on Guillerme. Maybe he's afraid he's going to run and head first dive in a second base. And if he's on third, there's less of a risk of a head first dive. It's the only thing I could think of. But it was odd that at that point, he sends Marte out. But okay, first and third, nobody out. Tomas Nino's up. And again, I'm saying, Buck, where's Eduardo Escobar? Again, at the time, I did not know Escobar was unavailable because of workplace, whatever, whatever the hell they're calling it. So Nito's batting for himself, and he's striking out. Nick Plummer, obviously, it's a little chopper. Uh, there's confusion with Adamas getting back to second base. Either way, weird fielder's choice. Mets get a cheap on her and run. Great, I'll take it any way I can get it. But when you realize Escobar is not there and you realize Marte can't hit or field, the Mets literally played this game with freaking one bench player. It's crazy to me. So hopefully Escobar is back. Hopefully Starling Marte is going to be cleared. But it left Bulk in a position in that eighth inning where it was less than ideal with the pieces he had coming off of the bench. But they were able to scratch out a run. As far as Edwin Diaz is concerned, I'd love to bitch and moan about Edwin because he was very, very fortunate that the Brewers were ultra-aggressive when Tyrone Taylor hit that bloop double and Hunter Renfro tried to score and he thrown out. I think it was Hunter Renfro. I'm not sure if they sent him a pinch runner. If they did, I may have missed it. I don't know. The reason I can't kill Diaz is that was the softest contact in the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just trying to be fair. And... After the bad break of giving up the blue double, and then the good break of the aggressive base running and Pete making the throw to the plate and Tomas Nito applying the tag, here comes Christian Yelich, and he struck him out on three pitches. Like, so I give Edwin Diaz major credit that despite this, what could have been a kick in the balls kind of blown save, after he gets the lucky break after the unlucky break, because the contact was soft as hell. He's able to pump it past Christian Yelich for a big strikeout. And so when Buck goes out there, runner on third, two outs, I think we're all assuming he's going out there to ask him, do you want to face Christian Yelich? And this gets me to Buck. I like Buck. I think Buck's obviously done a great job. He's the manager of the year. 
it's starting to annoy me a little bit how he won't answer an effing question. Now he, I'm sorry. I, after this game, there's a few questions you kind of want to know. Where's Eduardo Escobar? I can't talk about it. It's a legal thing. I, I don't even know if it is a legal thing. But he won't give you anything about Escobar. Okay, fine. You want to accept that and say, not a big deal. Maybe he really can't talk about it. The first response he has to what did you say to Diaz was, I'm not going to tell you. And then he says, well, I really didn't talk. Oh, wait, I did talk. I said something and I turned around. Like, what? Like, why did you go out there? Then he kind of pivots into the, well, there was that crazy play right after the double. I'm just trying to give him a, a breather. Then he goes on and says, I need exercise, which I, I know he's joking, but Buck, why'd you go out there? Like, it's, it's not that complicated. And then when asked, hey, did you ask Edwin Diaz, do you want to face Yelich? I thought this was interesting. So I guess he does occasionally give you something. He says, I would never ask him that because the pitcher's always going to say, I want to face the guy. And then he alluded to earlier this season when he did have Edwin Diaz walk a guy and Edwin was pissed at him and gave him a look. So if he didn't ask him, hey, what do you think? Do you want to go after Yelich? Do you want to go after Willie Adamas? What did he go out there for? And would it be that horrible to just, I don't know, tell us? Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in, these deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm not like upset about it. It's just more every day. Because I love watching Buck press conferences, boom press conferences too. I think it's really important to see what the managers have to say. Because uh, sometimes you leave a game with a lot of questions and hopefully the manager's pressed about it. So I like watching these guys after games. But sometimes I, I scratch my head and say, just, just answer the freaking question. It's not, it's not that complicated. I know there are certain things you don't want to talk about, certain things you want to keep private. But what you went out and said to Edwin Diaz, and it was quick, man, because he goes out there and quickly turns right back around. So, yeah, sitting in the ballpark, my assumption is he asked him, do you want to face Christian Yelich? According to Buck, he did. Then again, Buck could just be lying to us. Maybe he did ask him, do you well, want to face Yelich? Did you, they actually talked to Diaz afterwards. What did he Diaz, say? He said he asked if he wanted to walk him. He said no. Are you freaking kidding me? Yes. So Buck lied to us. So Buck lied. He's a liar. He's lying, lying to all of us this whole time. So, first of all, great job by you checking out the Edwin Diaz postgame presser. I didn't hear it. So he said, Buck went out and said, do you want to face Yelich or walk him? Yeah. That's exactly what he said. He goes, do you want, it's a very quick conversation. He asked, he said, no, I want to face him. That was it. Are, you, went are back. you annoyed a little bit that Buck lies to us? Or does it not matter? Uh... Yes and no. I mean, in that scenario, 
not so much because it wasn't a big deal. The Escobar, I feel, is a little bit more misleading. Non-workplace event. What the hell could that be? Is he, like, at a party right now? Like, I, I, I honestly have no idea what he's doing. Like, that, to me, is off. If it, Is there something really serious? Is he, I mean, I'm no speculation, but, like, is he arrested? Does he have a stomach issue? Like, seriously, what the... It, just don't say anything. Don't say a non-workplace event. That's weird. That, that to me, throws me off. That's a little upsetting. But for normal cases, I'm okay with it. Yeah, it's funny. I'm more bothered by not admitting he asked Edwin, do you want to face him than Escobar? Because the one thing I take a step back with Escobar is we really don't know what's going on, and maybe he could answer it differently and not use the workplace environment thing and just say, look, I, I can't talk about it. I mean, maybe that would have been the best answer. I can't talk about it. Hey, is it his help? I can't. If you just go strict, I can't talk about it instead of saying anything, maybe that's better. Because maybe there really is a reason why he can't mention it. And look, we'll find out at some point, obviously. But he lied to us about Diaz. That's great. <laughs> He's still my guy. He's still my guy. I love him. I love him. But oh, hey, he can't lie a lot to us. Don't get this twisted. Buck's done an amazing job. I think we just have to remind ourselves that you can love somebody. You can think a guy's doing a great job. You can also criticize them or question them. Like, I go to game two of this series. What, what really bothered me about game two of this series, and I, and I get it, you lose a game 10 to 2, it's probably a game you're going to lose no matter what. First and second, nobody out in the first inning. They get nothing. It, was, it felt like a loss in a lot of ways. They played a very sloppy game. Francisco Lindor looked terrible defensively with that ball that went under his glove. They got numerous errors from the pitchers trying to pick guys off, whether it's David Peterson or Jake Reed. But what bothered me in the fifth was taking Peterson out, of course. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Gives up that leadoff hit to Adamas. Great. Get him out of the day. Get, get him out of the game. When Jake Reed hits a guy after walking a guy and getting two outs, all right, you want to give him another batter? I get it. When he walks Caratini with the bases loaded, can you get him out of the game? I'm sitting there thinking to myself, you try to win. You realize the game is on the line in this end. You are an extra base hit away from this thing getting completely out of hand. Because, yeah, the Mets have shown a great ability to come back. You're trailing Corbin Burns. You're trailing a guy that won the Cy Young last year. So after he walked Caratini with the bases loaded, and he's still in the game, and then he gives up the hit to Lorenzo Cain. I know it was off of Jake Reed, but still, he's still in the game. And then he gives up the backbreaker, the two-run hit to Jace Peterson. I thought Buck, and he hasn't done a lot of this, because again, he's had an A-plus season. He's been great. I thought he stuck with Jake Reed way too long in the fifth inning of this game, and he let the game get out of hand. Would the Mets have one if he pulled Jake Reed earlier, especially since it's not like Trevor Williams did a great job. Trevor comes in, and after he's forced to intentionally walk a guy, he gives up a couple of hits in a row. So, yeah, it probably ends up the same way. It was just frustrating to watch in the fifth inning. And the other thing I got ticked off at Buck, and this is more lighthearted being ticked off at him, is after the first game of this series, they were making a big deal about Brandon Nimmo's first inning at-bat and how it set the tone for the game. And it absolutely did. I completely agree. He worked a deep, deep count against Hauser, and it eventually rips a double, and boom, the Mets put together a three-run first inning. And he made the comment about, sometimes you can win a game in the first inning. Sometimes you can win a, first, uh, win a game in the first inning and not even score. And I felt the very next day, game two of this series, the Mets lost the game in the first inning. Because when they get two on and nobody out, and remember, they're down 2 nothing already. They gave up the two runs in the first inning. David Peterson was very shaky. And then it looked like he was actually going to settle down, but we were dead wrong about that. You're already down 2 nothing, and you're facing a guy that won the Cy Young last year. You're not facing some journeyman. You're not facing some bum. You're facing a guy that won the National League Cy Young last year. And by the way, he's had a pretty good year this year. Record aside, his ERA is sparkling. Corbin Burns is one of the better pitchers in baseball. You get 2-1 and nobody out. When Lindor strikes out and Alonzo pops up and McNeil can't come through, and he normally has this season, and you had two on, nobody out, I knew. And sometimes I know when I'm wrong. Like, I thought they were going to lose game three of this series. But you can't let a really good pitcher off the hook in the first inning. And so Buck Showalter the night before says sometimes you can win a game in the first inning 
The Mets lost the game in the first inning. As bad as that fifth inning was, they lost that game in the first inning. Giving up two runs right out of the gate, and then having 2-1 and nobody out, doing nothing about it, they lost that game in the first inning. And Lindor was annoying me, because I don't want to be a guy that turns on Francisco Lindor at every turn. I'm not. I'm just criticizing him. I'm calling him out. And it's not just the fact that he has been so streaky this season. He's had a, a weird year where he goes three weeks where he drives in a run every single at-bat, or at least it feels that way. Then he goes 0 for 15. But the defense pisses me off. You're Francisco Lindor. When you're not hitting, and I get it, there could be times when you're not hitting, I want to see A-plus defense. I want to see Francisco Lindor at his freaking best. And I know it was the opener of this series, and it was the game they won, but he's had some just shaky moments in the field. Very, very shaky. It's been a weird year for Lindor. Weird in that he's on pace to drive in a lot of runs. Weird that there have been times in which he looks like the elite player they're paying for. And then he's had these just massive slumps where he disappears. Where you get nothing out of him. I mean, even tonight, the finale of this series, at least we were recording it on Thursday night, he had a very quiet one for four. Day before that, he takes an over. Day before that, you know, quiet one for four. So he's been, it's been odd the kind of season he's had. He's been very, very streaky. But hey, they won the series. That's the most important thing. And I loved what they got in the opener of this series with Chris Bassett. I thought that was really, really important. We talked about it last time on the Rico, what's wrong with Chris Bassett. And maybe Hoff was right. Maybe you just can't face West Coast teams. Bassett had a, an interesting and understandable reasoning for his struggles and that was, I haven't been on the same page with my catchers. And for whatever reason, you know, he really clicked with James McCann earlier this season. You remember that game when Mazika was called up, where they just couldn't get together on signs at all? He actually pitched well in that game. And I think Mazika hit the game-winning home run. Or maybe I'm mixing games up. But no, I think Mazika hit the game-winning home run in that game. Uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's because he throws so many pitches. His reasoning was, I wasn't on the same page as my catchers. Well, he was definitely on the same page as his catcher, specifically Tomas Nito, in the opener of the series. So to get the dominance from Chris Bassett and to get the bounce back in the finale of this series, this was a very 2022 Mets-like series. They win a series, which is all they just got to keep doing. They do it against a quality Brewers team. They do it showing fight. They do it coming back. And that's why this win, the finale of this series win, won't be a top five Met victory. I'm not going to put it in the top five list. But that's a really, really good win. Really good win. I mean, just think about the difference in emotion if they lose this series compared to winning the finale, coming back, fighting back, and winning this series. So I think the third game of this series was big. A nice series victory. Oh, Brandon Nimmo. Brandon Nimmo is the gold glove award winner in center field. Now, I try to watch as much baseball as I can. I can't watch every inning of every team's play, so sometimes judging who the best defensive player is may not be the easiest thing to do. But, man, oh, man. Brandon Nimmo's become a different guy in center field. I remember two years ago thinking he's not a center fielder. I said it. I believed it. It was true. I don't think he was a center fielder. The progress he's made defensively, it's been awesome. It's been great to watch. Great to watch. That diving play he made in the opener of this series, and that's just that's an obvious one because it was a great diving play. But just watching him on a nightly basis, he has gotten so good defensively. All right, before we get to a couple of your tweets, questions, comments, and a few trade targets, I also want to address the Francisco Alvarez situation. Let's take a little bit of break from all that's going on in 2022, and let's look back. Because 25 years ago, on June 16th, 1997, 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, Everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. The New York Mets played the New York Yankees for the very first time. And I tweeted out a video honoring what to me was the greatest moment from a Met fan standpoint in Subway Series history. Dave Maligny shutting out the Yankees, striking out Derek Jeter. The Mets winning the first ever Subway Series game. And I tweeted that video out, very innocent, very nice of me. And boy, these Yankee fans, some of their responses, what douches. I mean, this is your big moment, a game in June. If you are, let's be fair about this. I hope we can be. If you're 37 and older, so you're my age, you're Hoff's age. And you're a Yankee fan. Not that you're listening to Rico Bronia, but let's just say you are. Can't you take a step back and realize that the first is amazing? We all remember our first. I'm not saying we're still in love with our first. I'm certainly not. She was, uh, well, no, I'm not going to say anything. But you can, you can imagine it. Yeah, she was, well, whatever. That's, that's not the freaking point. I was just so happy somebody was letting me sleep with her. But... <laughs> But this was our first. This was our first. The first time the New York Mets played the New York Yankees. No one could ever take away the first. And that's why that game is so memorable. Because I remember walking to Yankee Stadium that night and not knowing how to feel. Not knowing what to expect. That's the Yankees had never played. It was so foreign to think that the New York Mets and the New York Yankees were going to play a regular season game and it was going to count. Never made sense to me. It was so nuts. And to see all the Mets fans in that building that night, to take over that building right out of the gate, because remember the Mets scored some runs early in the first inning against Andy Pettit. That was one of those nights you'll never forget. With that said, they lost the second game of that series. They lost the third game of that series. Remember the Steve Beezer balk? Or at least getting David Cohn a balk? And then Tino Martinez in the game-winning hit? Ugh, against John Franco, that still makes me sick. So it all went downhill from there. I admit that. I mean, the pinnacle of Mets-Yankees, if you're a Mets fan, is the very first game in 1997. A few people did mention, and I totally get it, the Matt Franco game. If we ever did a full Subway Series, you know, reprieve, if you will, like a recap, the Matt Franco game is certainly a top one. It's probably pound for pound the best Mets-Yankees game of all time. Everything about that. Posada hitting the home run that Yankee fans think is the game winner. Piazza hitting the moonshot that still hasn't landed. Howie Rose has joked, or Gary Cohn has joked, that's the first home run in the history of City Field because it landed where they built City Field. And obviously, Matt Franco striking out because I think Mariano struck him out on that 0-2 pitch. I got to be honest. If it was Aaron Judge, he's punched out. And then ripping the game-winning hit down a run, and the Mets win 9-8. Was it 9-8 or 10-9? One or the other. They won by one. Great game. Amazing game. It's not the first. Sorry. Wasn't your first? Our first was Dave Malicki. So 25 years. My God, that makes me feel old. Do you remember, Hoff? Maybe you don't. Do you Do you have like a, I know where I was during that first Subway Series game or not as much as I do? Uh, I'm trying to think. I, I probably was home watching it. I definitely was watching it, though, because it was a huge deal. If I wasn't home... I was at a family member's house or something like that because I we were all locked in. It it was that big of a deal. And again, I'm split squad, so like my father's side of the family is all Mets fans, my mother's side of the family is all Yankee fans. So it's like brutal. 
it's it's it was a serious big deal in my in my family. So we were definitely watching it wherever we were. I just don't recall if it was at my house or not. Yeah, it was. It was so weird because at that time, remember the Yankees won the World Series the year before, so they're defending World Champions, and the Mets are were trying to become relevant because 1996, the year before, was such a weird season where they had all that historical uh, breakthrough years from Lance Johnson, Bernard Gilkey, and Todd Hundley, yet they went 71 and 91. And 1997 actually turned in to a pretty good season. It was my first pennant race, even though they really weren't in a pennant race with the Florida Marlins that year. But they were slowly on the rise and obviously finally made the playoffs in 99. We all know what happened in 2000. But 25 years. That, that's the part that jumps out of me because it really does feel like a moment that was yesterday. The other thing in history, and, and I'm too young to remember it, but it's important, is the whole June 15th thing. Acquiring Keith Hernandez, arguably pound for pound, one of the most important trades in the history of the franchise. Acquiring Don Clendenin, but then the negative of trading Tom Seaver. And every time I get to June 15th, and I know the history of the Seaver trade and the Keith stuff and all that, what always jumps out at me is the oddness of June 15th being the trade deadline. Could you, could you imagine that right now? Like the trade deadline was two days ago, three days ago. <laughs> That'd be nuts. That'd be terrible. That'd, of course. Be, how do you accomplish anything? Everyone's still in it technically, right? Well, but that, that and that's, that in lies the difference. You know, when they had the June 15th trade deadline, there were two divisions in each league. So you had a pretty good idea if you were in a playoff race or not. So the reason they moved it to July 31st is I think as time went by, it was kind of obvious. Like, it's just way too early. I'm actually a believer, and we'll spend a lot more time talking about trade targets. I'm going to do a few minutes on it a little bit. But I actually think the trade deadline should be August 31st. I don't even think it should be July 31st. Now, this year it's August 2nd, but you get the idea. But you want to go August 15th, I'm good with it. But we have so many playoff teams now. We have so many teams that think they're in a playoff race that I'd push the deadline back. And that leads me to just a few. And I wrote down five. I'll get to a couple of guys who I think would be great trade targets because they're obviously going to be available. Or, let me rephrase that, they're on teams that we know suck. Because... We could sit here and talk about the Red Sox. Remember a month ago, hey, if the Red Sox are terrible, let's get J.D. Martinez. They're not terrible. They're in a playoff race. They may well win one of the American League wildcard spots. So instead of speculating on a good team not being good and selling it, there are teams that you know are terrible. The Baltimore Orioles are terrible. The Detroit Tigers are likely terrible. The Oakland days are terrible, but let me get to my number one guy. My number one trade target. And he's on a team that is terrible. A team that we all know has no shot. And that is David Bednar, the Pittsburgh Pirates. So David Bednar last year had a very, very good season. I may have had him on my fantasy team for just a couple of weeks, and then he got hurt. But that's how I became familiar with David Bednar. That's how you usually become familiar with random relief pitchers when you're in a league. But Bednar had a very good year last year. And I had my eye on him, and I said, all right, he's still only 26 years old, 27 years old. Well, let's see if he's legitimate. The other night, because the Pittsburgh Pirates rarely win games, the Pittsburgh Pirates decided, you know what, we have a chance to win a game. Derek Sheldon doesn't know what to do with himself. Oh, my God, we may win a game. David Bednar came in with guys on, I think there were a couple guys on base in the seventh inning and got the final two outs of the seventh inning. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, I think he's pulling what Buck pulled last week with Edwin Diaz. He's going to use him to get some big outs in the seventh, some big outs in the eighth inning, and then he'll use somebody else to pitch the ninth inning. So Bednar then pitches the eighth, gets five outs. David Bednar came out and pitched the effing ninth inning. David Bednar got an eight-out save against the St. Louis Cardinals. And he has been awesome all year. And there have been times in which Shelton has used him to get six outs for a save. Now, great. He's not going to have to do that here. Edwin Diaz is clearly the closer. And instead of fantasizing about, like, this elite-level closer who's more of a household name, those guys aren't going to be available because those guys are on good teams. So I wonder if the Pittsburgh Pirates look at David Bednar, 
who's eligible for arbitration in another year. So he's not close to free agency. He's not even that close to being paid. But to the Pittsburgh Pirates, look at a 27-year-old relief pitcher who's having an out freaking amazing season. I mean, he has been – how many runs has he given up this year? Three runs all season long, whatever it is? To the Pittsburgh Pirates, look at David Bednar and say, now's the time to sell. And I sure hope so because clearly that's the kind of target the Mets are going to have to make. I know that Tyler McGill is now a major question health-wise. David Peterson has come back down to earth. But with the hope that Max Scherzer is very, very close, maybe even making a rehab start next week, and that Jacob DeGrom, fingers crossed, can come back and pitch, and the year Carrasco's had, and Bassett's bounced back, could they add a starting pitcher? Sure. Would I be good with adding Molly? Sure. I don't mean the drug. I mean Tyler Molly, the Cincinnati Red pitcher. Yes. But they got to add a reliever. And they got to go to the top of the food chain because some of these other relievers like Mark Melanson, who looks cooked, yeah. Daniel Bard, who while he's had a good year with the Rockies, I don't trust. A.J. Puck of the Oakland A's, yes, it'd be nice to add another lefty. These are all fine moves, but the big move, like a guy who can get you five, six outs in a big spot, that would be Bednar. The other guy who is, who's shaky, like, let me rephrase that. He's not shaky, but... Gives you a high upside, lefty, throws hard. Maybe this team would deal would be uh, Soto with the Titans. That's another guy I would take a look at. But he's he's got a big implosion factor. I've seen Gregory Soto blow up numerous times, including on Thursday night against the Texas Rangers. Bases loaded, gave up like a bases clearing triple. But to me, the number one relief pitching target should be David Bednar of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now... As far as the Francisco Alvarez debate is concerned, Mark Vientos, too. A couple of young players who have just torn it up. Alvarez in double-A catching. Vientos can play third base. DH at triple-A. I would love, especially with the injuries they're dealing with, even though they're minor, Escobar, the mystery around him, Starling Marte, who right now hopefully can be back in a day or two, but is unavailable to hit. And J.D. Davis has been good. Like, since the Mets have handed J.D., not handed, but have given J.D. Davis more of a starting opportunity with Dom in the minor leagues, he's hit. He's been productive. He still seems to hit him with a lot of bad luck, but he's been productive. And I like Luis Guillerme, and there's ways to get him at-bats by using the D.H. spot. I think this would be interesting to call up Vientos for two weeks, or Alvarez. I think they both could fit this. And give them opportunities at the major league level. The Alvarez thing, though, he's a catcher. Is he ready to catch this pitching staff? We see how delicate that could be with Chris Bassett. Would you call him up just as a bat? And I'm intrigued because you got two guys tearing up in the minor leagues, two guys who are huge prospects, two guys with major upside. At what point do you say, I don't love what I have here? And look, there's a good chance the Mets go out and trade for a bat anyway. I totally get that that the DH of this team come September is on a different roster. But I'd love to see what we have here. Because sometimes that young player you call up may make the biggest impact, whether it was Miguel Cabrera back in 2003 or even Michael Conforto with the Mets in 2015. So it's not burying J.D. Davis, but now does seem like an interesting time with the injuries, with the fact that you're going to want to rest guys to call up Mark Vientos and say, I'm going to give you two weeks. Let's go. Let's see what you can do. Hit. Nick Plummer's not the answer. Nick Plummer's had his moments. But Vientos offers that big upside. Alvarez, maybe not yet. But what I'm intrigued by with Alvarez, if you call him up, you DH him two days a week. You catch him one day a week. And then you have that bat off the bench. I know you don't want to call him up and not play him. So maybe it's your DH of three days a week and you catch him once or twice a week. Plus, it gives you interesting versatility to have a third catcher on the roster. So that is something to keep an eye on over the next few weeks, especially if both Vientes and Alvarez hit at the minor league level. You can always tweet us at Evan Roberts WFAN. Pete, you got any interesting comments or questions from the Twitterverse today? Uh, we do. Let's first start with B Foddy twenty one. 
Are you worried about the inconsistencies with the starting pitching and hitting? I feel they always don't score enough, and they've been blown out a lot past few games. It was weird. Their losses are, just feel like they're all blowouts. That's why when I, when I rack my brain and think of that brutal loss, that awful loss that you should have won that you gave away, they don't have a lot of those. Um, I prefer that when you lose, just get your ass kicked. Because A, you save your bullets in games you don't win. You lose a close game, you lose all your top relievers in that game. They're not available the next day. I think their offense has actually been pretty damn consistent. I think they could use another bat. The pitching staff, you know, Bassett just went through a month in which he sucked. Carrasco, and I mentioned this last time on the Rico, has his starts once every four or five in which he's awful. And David Peterson's a fill-in right now. Taiwan Walker's been mostly good. But you got to remember, all of these pieces in this rotation, they are three through fives. Jake and Max being healthy change everything. Having one of those guys back, dare I say both of those guys back, I think changes the entire perception of this rotation. All right, let's go to at Santman23. Who is the most important Met right now, and why is it Edwin Diaz? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he probably, in a lot of ways he is, because I could sit here and say, well, it's Francisco Lindor, or it's Pete Alonso. But in in a horrible world where they lost one of their key bats, there are other guys who would get that opportunity to fill in, and it's one of nine guys. Like, if they lost Francisco Lindor, as much as it would suck, Luis Guillerme would get a great opportunity to play every day. It would probably at least be halfway solid. If they ever lost Pete Alonso as much as that would suck, they'd probably give Dom Smith another opportunity or a Mark Vientos. And again, it hurts them, but they'll probably be okay. They've survived without Jake. They've survived without Max. It is a really good point. If Edwin Diaz wasn't here, he just mysteriously disappeared, you'd have to wonder, how would they get these big outs late in games? Where? Who's doing it? Where is it coming from? So a closer in a weird way is like an everyday player because they're going to get into a lot of games. They're going to get into maybe half the games in your season. So I know he was leading with the question, but he is probably right. I could rationalize the Mets surviving, losing almost anybody on this roster. Again, they've been without Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer. Losing Edwin Diaz. Who has been great for the most part? Do I still fully trust them? Not the podcast to discuss it. Maybe in a time. I guess there's a part of me that doesn't. But yeah, he's really, really important. And the look of this bullpen would feel completely different without him. We got time for two more. Go, Pete. Beautiful. All right. At Matt Salem, Mark Canna always seems to come through in big spots, whether it's runs in scoring position or when the team needs a jolt. True. Do you feel that? Do you have that, that buzz about Marcana? Every time he's up a bat, big spot, I, he comes through? I feel that way about more guys on this team than I ever have. Usually, I've got no faith in 80% of the roster. Most of us as Met fans do. But I think that they have had a good balance of almost everybody coming through with a big hit. What I love about Marcana is that he may not come through with the big hit, but he's going to give you an at-bat. And he's going to battle you. And he's going to put the ball in play. The Mets again proved in the finale of this series that putting the ball in play matters. It's a big deal. When Luis Guillerme taps the ball to Rowdy Tellez with a runner on first and nobody out, sure it could have been a double play, sure it could have been a force out, but you force your opponent to potentially make a mistake. And Tellez did. So when I look at Mark Hanna, who had a big home run in the finale of this series, obviously, to tie it up, it's not that I always think he's going to come through. I, I have confidence he's going to put together a quality at-bat and put the ball in play. And when you put the ball in play, good things can happen. And finally, from Stephen Prosciutto, what are the former Mets were considered to be the name of this podcast? What other former Mets? Yes. Nobody! <laughs> <laughs> the origin of this name, I think this is pretty simple, is that we were going to do a Met podcast. I'm not a big fan of cliches, you know, and not to pick on any other podcast because there's a lot of great Met podcasts out there in all fairness, but I didn't want to do something 
you know, kind of like what I do with the Nets, Brooklyn Basketball Pod. It's a boring, crappy name. I mean, no, no offense. It just is what it is. And so our boss, Spike Eskin, who's, you know, an average boss. I don't know how great he is, but he's all right. The one thing I think he does great is he has a Philadelphia 76ers podcast, and it's called Rights to Ricky Sanchez. And Google Ricky Sanchez if you care. And I said this to Spike. I said, I don't really like you very much, but I love that podcast name. I just, that's the kind of creativity I like because it's just so weird. And so I asked him, I said, do you mind if I rip you off? And he said, of course, go ahead. And I said, I should name my podcast a random Met. And my favorite Met as a kid was Rico Bronia. And to many people listening, that's random. So Rico Bronia. So we never considered anyone else, though I did jokingly call it the Butch Husky ones, just to see how it would sound. Welcome to the Butch Husky, coming up on the Butch. But, now nah, Rico's my guy. I love Rico Bronia. You may catch me at City Field wearing a Rico Bronia jersey. I do it once in a while. He's my guy. So it was more just, let's just, first of all, I think names are overrated. Like, who cares what the name of the podcast is? If you like the podcast, great. If you think it sucks, it is what it is. Like, the name of it isn't going to change your view. So I just wanted something different. I ripped my boss off uh, because it was, you know, rights to Ricky Sanchez's random. And I thought of uh, my favorite former random Met, and that would be Rico Bronia. And at some point, Rico will join us. At some point, probably during the offseason. We'll talk a little uh, first base defense with the great Rico Bronia. We'll be back and we'll record Sunday night. Oh, I'm sorry, Monday night after the Mets wrap up their four-game series coming up with the Miami Marlins, where hopefully this homestand will continue to go up. A nice two out of three series victory against the Milwaukee Brewers. So check it out for the next Rico Bronia. And I guess uh, I was told that if you want, you should rate and review of the podcast or something. I guess you could do that. But someone told me I should say that. So rate and review the Rico Bronia podcast. Thanks. Even if you think it sucks. Because if you think it sucks and you spend enough time rating it, I kind of admire that. But if you think it's great, do that too. Either way, Carter Roberts, 2 o'clock on the fan. Tiki Tierney, 10 a.m. on the fan. Thank you for listening to another edition of Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. 